everyone. We're back with the District 3 podcast, episode 148. Um, today, I'm joined by someone who I'm really excited about interviewing today. Uh, I've been following him on TikTok for, I think, almost two, two years now. And uh, I like the content that he puts out, how he educates people in our community, and uh, how he motivates people to get involved just in general. That's something that I'm super passionate about. So I want to introduce to you immigrant rights activist slash social media influencer, Carlos Eduardo Spina. Thank you for joining us, Carlos. ¿Cómo estás? No, todo bien. Thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure. Great to be here with you. And we were just talking about how, man, we were. I'm just thankful that you made the time. You were in class. You yeah. got out of class, set up your... Uh, your uh, presentation there. Now you're here with us. And I was telling you how professional you are. The fact that you have a green screen, man, I need to step my game up. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, uh, I never really thought about content creation as like a serious thing. You know, I just started making TikToks during the pandemic because um, we were all locked up at home and I was just to pass the time and eventually it became something really big. And I was like, well, part of what I do is inform the community and serve I should do it the best way possible, trying to get as professional as I can within my budget. So I got this little green screen. It wasn't too expensive, like $120. And you know, I've been rocking it ever since. But yeah, and I mean, just part of it. You just grow as your content grows, you grow as well. So you started, I didn't know that you started during the pandemic. Uh, did you see like there was a, a space available for that kind of content specifically on TikTok? And was that something where you were like, okay, no one's really doing this like I want to do it or how the vision that I have. And that's kind of what inspired you to to want to yeah. do this content. Yeah, so it is really interesting how it happened. Um, so I, I graduated uh, high school in 2017. And right after high school, I started my first nonprofit. It was called Football for the Future. And we did free summer soccer camps for low income kids in our community in Bryan College Station, Texas. And then right after I went to Vassar College in New York, I did my undergraduate there and graduated in May of 2020. And during college, I also created another nonprofit called the Tain Refugee Solidarity Fund, where I send money, letters uh, to immigrants detained in ICE detention centers. So when I graduated in May of 2020, uh, my idea originally was to work on my own nonprofits and also work with another nonprofit in Austin uh, called Casa Marianela. What they do is like they, um, uh, they receive refugees who, who have no one to sponsor here, them here in the U.S. So that was my original plan, you know, get involved in the nonprofit world after graduating. The, the pandemic came and, well, that kind of went away. You know, the soccer camp that I did, I couldn't do it in person. So I was like, well, I can't do that this summer. Uh, the letters that I would write, the ICE detention centers basically went on complete lockdown. It was very hard to communicate, to get access. So I was like, well, I can't keep doing that for the foreseeable future. The other job I had lined up in Austin, well, it just didn't work out because they had the funding issues with COVID and they didn't know how the programs were going to look in the future. So I was at home like, okay, well, what do I do now? I'm about to graduate college. It was around March, April, May of 2020. I was graduating in a month or two and I didn't really know what I was going to do. So um, while I was just trying to figure things out, uh, one of the organizations I would volunteer with locally uh, was called Brazos Interfaith Immigration Network. And one of the things I would do with, was to teach citizenship classes for them. So they reached out to me and they're like, hey, Carlos, can you help us teach citizenship classes online during the pandemic? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I started on Facebook teaching them online. And uh, all the time people would come, hey, you should do the same, but on TikTok, you know, and people, my friends would send me TikToks. And I was like, well, to me, TikTok was just about dancing, comedy. I mean, nothing like what I was interested in. But then I thought about it. Well, maybe if there's not content that I'm interested in is because no one's making content 
that I would be interested in. So why don't I make that content? And I'm sure other people will find it interesting as well. So my first TikToks were in, around March, April of 2020, uh, doing the citizenship questions. So it was basically, I would do like, well, there's a hundred questions. I would do one per video. Okay, quien escribió la constitución? Okay, blah, 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 do the answer. And I didn't really think much of it. And one of the first videos I made, I had like probably 20, 30 followers at that time. Woke up the next day and had over 100,000 views. And I was like, yo, what, what's up with this, this app? You know, like I didn't, it's pretty powerful. So I started like making more and more videos. Once I went through the 100 questions, I started talking about other stuff, about politics, about anything that was interesting to me. And, and um, yeah, it just kind of took off from there. Then around the 2020 elections, I was already hovering at around 300, 400,000 followers. Um, and I did a lot of coverage on the election in Spanish, gave my own personal viewpoints, and that really took off because there was no one else at that time doing the same thing I was doing all in Spanish. So after the election, I got to half a million followers, and then uh, it just kind of kept going up from there, and I haven't looked back since. Now I use my platform of over 3.7 million followers on TikTok, 600,000 on Facebook, 200-something thousand on Instagram. Uh, I use these platforms to inform the community and then also just see what ways we can support each other, what causes are going on, what movements, et cetera. And um, yeah, I've kind of just become my life. Right now I'm in law school because when I started making TikTok, the first thing people would ask me, hey, do you know a lawyer? Do you know a lawyer? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, why don't I apply to go to law school? Ended up in law school and now I'm uh, during the day, I go to class and then in the afternoons I study and when I have time, I make content and that's just kind of how I'm living life right now. So how does it how does it look like for you? For example, you mentioned you have all these TikTok followers, millions. I don't think, if I recall, just because the the age of social media is is still fairly new, I don't think there's been any uh, activist, specifically in the immigrant rights field, that has had that big of a following and can be probably very overwhelming. How do you manage that? How do you manage to not let people's opinions? Because I mean, I see your videos, you know, sometimes you post them, sometimes other people will post them and there's positive and then there's a lot of negative. And yeah. I don't know about you, but sometimes the negative does affect the most, even if it's just one little one compared to all the positive. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with all of that? Yeah, and it's one of those things. I mean, I was just never prepared because like I said, I just started making videos to kill time. And if you would have told me when I started, you were going to have 100,000 followers, let alone over three and a half million, I would have never believed you so a lot of it has been learning how to kind of um, maneuver certain situations and how to react to criticism or people who just hate you for no reason and also the positivity as well how to manage all of it uh, and I've kind of what I've just learned is that social media is one of those places where you can no matter what you post there's always going to be someone who agrees with you and someone who doesn't agree with you and particularly when we're talking about immigration and other kind of uh, controversial topics, political topics that people have really strong opinions about. So at first I would really lose like, uh, I would lose motivation when I would get negative comments or like really get caught up in them. But then I just learned, I'm like, well, you know, if people are following me, it's because a lot of people agree with what I'm saying. So those negative comments, I started turning them into content. So if you see a lot of my videos, people will say something racist or xenophobic or whatever. And I'll get that comment and I'll reply to that comment give my own spin to it and people uh, like the way I respond because they feel the same way. So a lot of it has just been, you know, learning how to react to that criticism and then also just accepting that you're never going to please any uh, everyone um, and just being comfortable with that. But I think it's all worth it, especially when you move beyond the social media to the real life. I mean, like 
it happens very often if I'm in some uh, immigrant space, whether it be like a, a rally, a protest or something more informal, like a restaurant or just walking, you know, at a mall or whatever. It happens pretty often that someone will recognize me and talk to me and really thank me for the work that I do. And, you know, just kind of tell me their life stories. And, you know, those positive interactions that I, I have really touched my heart and have made it all worth it. So I think it's just um, realizing that you're never going to please everyone, but that the most people do uh, in one way or another, if they follow you, it's because they, they look up to what you're doing. Makes sense. And going back a little bit more back to just the origin of like why you wanted to do this kind of work. Is there something specifically in your past that motivated you to want to get involved in this field? As I was doing my research just on you in general, um, I saw, I think I found something. You can tell me if this is true or not. Like your dad's a poet. Yeah. Dad, he does poetry and he's pretty popular in Uruguay, right? With his poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does that kind of, is that something that kind of influenced you in the way that you speak? Because you're a very well-spoken, you know, young person. For, and specifically when you started doing all of this, you were already well-spoken. Yeah. No, so my background is kind of interesting, you know, and I haven't really, I didn't really think about it too much until, you know, I started growing up. I think it happens to all of us. But essentially, um, my dad migrated from Uruguay to the U.S. Um, in the 80s when there was a dictatorship there. He had just graduated college in Uruguay and he was working at a local newspaper because his passion was always writing. But obviously, working for a newspaper during a dictatorship is probably not, is not a very secure career, not something very advisable. So he got an opportunity to come study in the U.S., and he got a master's and then he got a PhD. He basically just kept studying as much as he could so he could retain his uh, visa status. And then eventually he became a professor at Texas A&M University, adjusted his status to permanent resident. That was before I was born. And yeah, he was a poet. So he publishes uh, uh, poetry and books in general across Latin America. One of the books he published was in Mexico around 1994-ish, also before I was born. But he met my mom uh, while in Mexico and I guess they fell in love. That's what they tell me. So they fell in love. And um, yeah, they just started to start dating. But obviously, my dad had to come back to the U.S. because that's where he was working. And my mom decided to come to the U.S. with him. Uh, they had a kid. They, they got married. They had a kid, uh, in, which is my older brother, in 1996. But my mom was here with a temporary visa. So she went to an immigration check-in in 1997. And they were like, hey, why did you have a kid in the U.S.? You know, you're here on a temporary visa, supposedly. That doesn't seem very temporary to us. So basically, they ripped her visa up, deported her, and then they gave her estos los castigos que los llaman, uh, the, the cinco yeah. años, so the diez años, something like that. They Basically, she had to leave the country and couldn't come back in. So that was in 1997. I still wasn't born, but my dad would go visit her. And in one of those visits, well, she got pregnant with me. When she found out, she decided to move from Mexico to Uruguay because we have more family in Uruguay. Um, and then I was born in Uruguay in 1998. It took her oh, a little over five years for her to fix everything, all the issues she had with immigration. Uh, pidió el perdón, como le dicen. Uh, eventually, after a couple of times, they granted it to her, and she was able to come back to the U.S. in around 2003. By that point, I was around four, five-ish years old, and I came to the U.S. for the first time. So it's kind of like a very it's a very complex story and uh, um, I'm sure that's not the complete story there's a lot of stuff obviously for personal reasons that my, it, it really affected my parents thankfully I wasn't old enough to remember any of that but it kind of just marked me ever since you know it was just like it was something that would be talked about here and then but always one of those things you want to kind of move past from 
Um, but growing up in Texas, I mean, I was in a dual language program in school. So all my friends through soccer and through school were immigrants, mostly from Mexico and from Central America. Uh, so I just kind of grew up in that environment. And, you know, you would you would have friends, some whose parents weren't documented, but they were citizens, other kids who uh, weren't documented straight up, other people who kind of came from mixed status families. So it just really depended. But you, growing up, you don't really notice a lot of those things. You know, it's just the way the world is. And as I started growing up more, I kind of got interested, you know, like once I got a high school age, I was like, well, why does this happen in our community? And it doesn't happen in other communities. Why are they deporting my friends, family, but not other people that I know? And you just kind of started getting interested in those things. And that also coincided with two other major events, one of which was the 2016 elections around 2015, which got me. And I think for a lot of young people was a political awakening, got us really interested in politics. And then also there was a, a big surge of my uh, unaccompanied minors coming from Central America, a lot of which ended up at, at my high school. And, you know, I kind of learned from that perspective as well. So a lot of things just kind of collided. And I was like, you know, I grew up from an immigrant background. All my friends are immigrants. These elections are going on. I'm really interested in immigration. A bunch of my friends who are, just, are like, I made new friends who are immigrants who just came one, two years ago. So I just kind of got involved in that environment and, and started seeing, I mean, myself in this environment in these spaces and as far as like the language goes and the expressing myself one thing my parents were always really big on was that I had to speak Spanish in, at home they always told me you're going to learn English in, in school so in at the house you can only speak Spanish so till this day I only speak Spanish with my parents and I think I'm really grateful for that because when I was young I didn't understand but now that I'm older and I'm able to communicate in both English and Spanish it's something that I'm really grateful uh, to my parents for having uh, instilled those values in me. And I hope to pass them off uh, to my children whenever I have them. Interesting, because I always feel like there's there's always something. Uh, there's always something that motivates people to want to get involved in a specific issue. Uh, yeah. you know, like for me, my my best friends in high school were all undocumented. Mm. And my wife is on DACA. So it becomes kind of like a personal thing where you kind of have to check your privilege and be like, I'm a very privileged person being a citizen in this country. What can I do to equal or level the playing field for other folks that are here um, that don't have the same privilege that we have, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's how I felt a lot as well. You know, like growing up, I was like, you know, I have the privilege of being a citizen. I, I'm completely fluent. So like, how can I do this? Or how can I use these uh, privileges that I have to help others who don't have the same, uh, the, the same privileges? And that became, for example, it, when the uh, the new migrants were coming from Central America, I will, since I was the, the captain on the soccer team and these kids were really good at playing soccer, but they needed to pass their classes or pass their classes to play on the team. I started tutoring them. I started, uh, uh, when my mom became a citizen, I learned the citizenship question. So after school, I would help other people learn the citizenship exam, like all those kind of things, you know, you don't really think about it in the moment, but it kind of starts forming you in a certain way that once you hit that age of maturity around 16, 17, 18, uh, you start realizing, oh, wow, well, I already have this track record of informally helping people. Why not like get more invested in it, start reaching out with organizations who do this day-to-day -day basis, maybe study it in, in, in university. That's why I studied political science and Latin American studies. So you always have like this kind of formation that you don't really realize is going on until you're a bit older. And you're like, well, I've already done all of this in the community. 
why not take it a step further, make an organization out of it, get involved with uh, more established entities, with people, community leaders, et cetera. And that kind of just leads you down this path of the more you get involved, then you meet this person who knows this person who does this project, and then you volunteer there, and then you end up being involved in a hundred things. I'm sure you know, as a, as a community organizer, activist yourself, you always get involved in these spaces. And then next thing you know, you have 20, 30 projects on your hand, but that's just kind of how it goes. It's just like a natural development. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most. It, it's never felt forced to me. It's just kind of something that was meant to happen and is happening, thankfully. Okay. And to switch it up a little bit, this is a bilingual podcast. So I'm going to ask you the next question in Spanish. Uh, uno de los proyectos que, en los que trabajaste tú es mandándole cartas a gente en las cárceles, especialmente la comunidad de la comunidad indocumentada. Entonces había gente que estaba ahí a lo mejor en proceso de deportación o, y gente que, que fueron deportadas también. Uh, ¿Puedes hablar un poco sobre ese proyecto? ¿Qué es lo que te dio la idea para hacer eso? Y si todavía es un proyecto que sigues haciendo hoy. Sí, entonces, eh, ¿cómo? eso originó en el 2019, eh, volviendo un poco con los amigos que, con, con quienes yo crecí. Muchos de ellos eran indocumentados, siguen siendo indocumentados. Y un amigo en particular, que es de Belice, eh, después de graduarse de, de, del high school, nos graduamos juntos, yo fui a la universidad y él empezó a trabajar en las petroleras en, en West Texas, ahí entonces él tenía, donde nosotros eh, vivíamos en College Station, él tenía que manejar unas 8 hasta 10 horas para llegar a donde él trabajaba, y él estuvo haciendo eso por unos años después de graduarse, eh, pero en una ocasión en el 2019, cuando él venía eh, regresando eh, de la petrolera, o, o regresando a su casa, eh, obviamente pues son unas carreteras larguísimas, es muy común que la gente vaya en exceso de velocidad y bueno, lo paró un policía por ir a exceso de velocidad, le preguntó por su licencia de conducir, le dijo que no tenía, básicamente bueno, eh, empezó a sospechar que era inmigrante y como sabemos que eh, muchas de esas rutas están cerca de la frontera, en áreas rurales, pues los policías ya sabemos cómo son. Eh, el punto es que luego terminó eh, eh, en la prisión del condado por manejar con no licencia y por ir manejando sobre velocidad y luego vieron que no tenía un estatus migratorio y lo enviaron a un centro de detención de inmigración. Eh, se llama el South Texas Detention Complex en, Pearsall, eh, en la ciudad de Pearsall, que quedó como a una hora de San Antonio. Él estando ahí, eh, cualquier persona que conoce el proceso de deportación, uno de los componentes es que le tienes que probar al juez que tú mereces permanecer aquí en Estados Unidos y un aspecto de eso son las cartas de personas ciudadanas que te conocen, que básicamente pueden decir esta es una buena persona, trabajadora, que merece quedarse en el país. Entonces, él me pidió que yo le escribiera una carta al juez, entonces yo le escribí esa carta, eh, pero también él estando ahí adentro, pues obviamente uno se siente aislado, entonces hablábamos de vez en cuando por el teléfono y yo en una ocasión le pregunté, oye, ¿y no hay como otras personas ahí detenidas contigo que quizás no tengan nadie con quien hablar? Porque en este caso tú ya, ya tienes una vida aquí, tienes amigos, tienes familiares, pero alguien más. Y me contó, sí, mira, hay mucha gente, particularmente los que vienen solicitando asilo y fueron detenidos. Esto fue obviamente durante la época de Trump, donde estaban repletos los centros de detención. Hay mucha gente aquí que no tiene nadie que los apoye. Eh, tan siquiera mandarle unos 5 o 10 dólares para hacer llamadas, o sea, no tienen nada de apoyo. Y dije, bueno, pregúntale si puedo yo comunicarme con ellos, pásame su información. Y dijo, está bien. Al otro día me llama y me dice, hey, no tengo mucho tiempo en el teléfono porque ya sabes, ahí en los centros de detención tienes los minutos limitados, pero me dice, hey, anota estos 10 estos nombres y número A, que número A es el número de alguien que te da inmigración. Entonces, cuando te tienen, te tienen detenido, 
eh, te dan tu nombre obviamente y el número A y necesitas esas dos cosas para poder comunicarte con una persona. Entonces él me pasó el número A y el nombre de 10 migrantes detenidos y dijo, a ver si los puedes ayudar de alguna manera. Yo publiqué en Instagram en ese entonces, antes de que me siguiera tanta gente, eran solo mis amigos, y dije, hey, eh, necesito ayudar a estas 10 personas y me pueden donar, yo qué sé, 5 o 10 dólares. Y logré recaudar 150 dólares en un día. Entonces, al próximo día le mandé 15 dólares a cada uno. Y eso se convirtió, o sea, eh, imagínate, en esos centros de detención, uno puede trabajar, pero solo le pagan un dólar al día. Y para hacer una llamada o comprar comida, lo que quieras, obviamente te sale mucho más que eso. Entonces, cuando ellos se dieron cuenta que había alguien allá afuera ayudando a los migrantes detenidos, esos 10 migrantes le dijeron a otros 10 cada uno y pronto ya le estaba, estaba ayudando y escribiéndole a 50 migrantes, a 100 migrantes. Luego, ¿qué pasa? Un inmigrante lo mueven a otro centro de detención. Entonces, él llega a ese centro de detención y me avisa, hey, aquí estoy, conocí nuevos amigos. Y se fue creando como una red informal de, de migrantes detenidos. Fui creando una base de datos donde yo manda, eh, recaudaba fondos, eh, mandaba dinero, escribía cartas, los llamaba. En algunos casos iba hasta a visitar a los centros de detención. Y ahí en la universidad conseguí voluntarios, amigos o personas que les importaba el tema para que me ayudaran a escribir las cartas. Hasta tal punto que eso como el 2000, a finales del 2019 y a comienzos del 2020, yo estaba escribiendo fácilmente 50, 60 cartas a la semana. Eh, y sí, ese, como te había mencionado anteriormente, esa era mi meta. Después de graduarme, tomar esa organización y hacerla grande y, o sea, trabajar en eso. Pero fue cuando empezó la pandemia, en marzo del 2020, y eso fue como un cierre total de todo lo que tenía que ver con comunicación a los inmigrantes detenidos. Las, las visitas, olvídate, las cartas al principio, como no sabían si, si el COVID se podía pasar, por, por, o sea, cómo se transmitía el COVID, cerraron toda la comunicación. Y eso combinado con el hecho de que perdí la habilidad de conectarme con gente en persona y mostrarle cómo se hacen las cosas, básicamente cerró todas las operaciones por más de un año. Ahora sí sigo escribiendo cartas y mandando dinero, pero más que nada es cuando una persona que me sigue me escribe y me dice, hey, Carlos, yo tengo un familiar detenido en tal lugar, su nombre es este, su número es este, y luego yo voy y les envío dinero. Pero así como era tan grande, obviamente la pandemia eh, lo afectó mucho y ahora el hecho que estoy haciendo otros proyectos, estoy en la Escuela de Leyes, ha impedido que pueda seguir creciendo esas operaciones, pero eh, sí lo hago de vez en cuando cuando alguien me contacta y, y, y me da la información de su familiar o amigo para yo ayudarlos. ¿Y tienes una, una cuenta separada para ese tipo de trabajo o es cosa que nada más tú le das el dinero que tienes tú? No, pues ahora, eh, como ya, gracias a Dios, eh, yo cuento con apoyo a través de las redes sociales, o sea, no la gente que me dona, sino como eh, seguramente ya sabes, en TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, que las plataformas te pagan por las vistas que uno recibe. Eh, y yo siempre le dije a la gente, o sea, yo nunca empecé a hacer videos para hacerme rico ni vivir de esto. Entonces, eh, pues dependiendo qué proyectos hay, pero yo siempre busco la manera de lo que yo gano en Facebook o TikTok o Instagram, donarlo a diferentes causas, entre esas causas siendo esta de los inmigrantes detenidos. Así que hace como más de un año y medio o dos años desde que empecé a hacer dinero en redes sociales, que no, no busco donaciones para esa organización, pero también apoyo otros proyectos diferentes. Por ejemplo, hace eh, el mes pasado en Houston, eh, colaboré con una organización que se llama Fiel, 
y doné 10 mil dólares para que 200 niños pudieran comprar útiles escolares ahí en el área de Houston. Así que siempre buscando maneras. Eh, a César Espinosa aquí. Sí, 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 César, con César. Entonces fue con César ahí. Pues sí, siempre buscando la manera de ayudar. Eh, y con tantos, o sea, ahora con una plataforma tan grande, sí tengo la fortuna de que si hay algo particularmente urgente, que necesitamos recaudar fondos para esto o lo otro, siempre lo podemos hacer. Pero siempre limito esas ayudas porque, como digo, si yo tengo los recursos, pues, ¿para qué pedirle a otras personas eh, si yo lo puedo hacer? Y uno, uno de los proyectos que también estás trabajando es uh, para la reforma migratoria. Uh, sí. Sé que es algo que a lo mejor uh, muchos de nosotros hemos estado involucrados por muchos, muchos años y a veces se ve como que es una promesa que nunca se va a cumplir. Um, mm. Pero tú hiciste un evento uh, en, en Washington, D.C., creo, fue hace algunos meses, ¿no? Sí, um, el 14 de febrero fue, sí, sí, sí. 14 de febrero y era, era, creo que le pusiste el título de Un Día Sin los Inmigrantes, Un Día Sin Inmigrantes. Y fue algo que también se ha hecho en, el, en años pasados también, donde la gente no va a trabajar, no va a la escuela uh, y tratan de no comprar en, en tiendas uh, po populares, ¿verdad? Mm -hmm. y, y miré que, que hicieron un evento ya en DC. ¿Tú cómo, cómo sentiste que, que fue el evento? ¿Tú, si, ¿Tú lo sentiste que fue algo... ¿Algo como tú querías o quisieras que fuera más gente? O tú, tú, yo más quiero saber tu opinión sobre sí. el evento que hiciste ese día y también los resultados. Sí, no, como tú bien mencionas, no fue una idea nueva. Eh, de hecho, fue una idea que lleva años, décadas hasta diría, no es la primera vez que se hacía. Eh, pero en esta ocasión surgió porque... Eh, como bien sabemos, en el 2020 votamos por Biden y pues bien emocionados de que iba a pasar algo. Todo el 2021, pues todos estuvimos pendientes de que eh, primero que había tal propuesta, pero quedó estancada en el Senado, luego que, la, luego que había el plan A, luego el plan B, luego el plan C, llegamos hasta el plan Z o yo qué sé. O sea, había tantas cosas pasando y al final terminamos en 2021, como todos los años, con las manos vacías. Entonces, el do, eh, en, febrero, en enero del 2022, que fue a comienzos de este año, pues ya mucha gente empezó, hey, pero ¿qué pasó el año pasado? Según iba a pasar nada y no pasó nada. Entonces yo empecé a hacer videos sobre ese tema y en los en vivos lo hablaba de mis frustraciones y alguien eh, en un en vivo me comentó, hey, Carlos, ¿y por qué? O sea, tú tienes mucha gente que te sigue, ¿por qué no propones un, un, un día sin inmigrantes o algún tipo de protesta así para eh, poder unirnos y exigir una reforma migratoria? Entonces dije, bueno, está bien, hice un video y dije, hey, ¿qué les parece mi gente? ¿Un día sin inmigrantes apoyan o no apoyan? Y mucha gente dijo que sí, que da, vamos a darle. Entonces yo empecé a organizarlo. Luego personas de diferentes eh, organizaciones empezaron a contactar, a ver cómo podíamos colaborar. Hasta que al final se hizo eh, el, febrero, el 14 de febrero. Por un punto de vista, yo, yo creo que sí fue exitosa en el sentido de que movilizó mucha gente. Por ejemplo, eh, eh, si ves ahorita hace unas eh, semanas, más de creo que eran como cinco o seis personas, eh, trabajadores del campo, marcharon 23 días desde Leino, California, hasta Sacramento. Y una de las personas que, que marchó, incluso fue una persona que se sintió muy inspirada por lo que hicimos de, después del 14 de febrero, empezó a involucrarse más en el trabajo y ahora está bien, bien metida en el activismo. Así que si hablamos de resultados, pues creo que todos sabemos que el, seguimos con las manos vacías. Entonces, el objetivo verdadero era lograr una reforma migratoria, obviamente no se ha logrado, pero creo que sí logró inspirar a mucha gente que quizás anteriormente no sentía como que tenía una voz o que tenía poder y que ahora sí lo siente. Así que eso creo que es muy importante. Eso dicho, yo creo que el problema más grande que hay, no solo con este evento, sino con muchos eventos que se han tenido, 
es que la gente apoya, pero simplemente cree que ya, ya se han dado por vencidos en una reforma migratoria. Entonces dicen, ¿saben qué? O sea, yo se apoyo, pero la verdad yo no creo que esto va a pasar, así que ¿por qué gastar mi tiempo? Y recibí muchos comentarios como esos, porque mucho del apoyo lamentablemente se quedó solo en las redes sociales, porque mucha gente que sí apoyaba en redes sociales, hizo sus videos, dijo, mira, pero en persona yo no voy a perder un día de trabajo porque sé que al final del día hagamos lo que hagamos, nunca va a pasar nada. Yo no soy de esa mentalidad, yo creo que si suficiente gente se une y alza la voz y hace un paro laboral o algo así, un poco más extremo, yo creo que se podría lograr algo, pero es muy difícil eh, convencer eh, a la gente de que algo mejor es posible. Entonces yo creo que por eso es tan importante las organizaciones locales, como en tu, tu caso, o sea, hablar con la gente de tu comunidad y crear esa conciencia. Uno de los problemas que yo tuve es que mucha gente ni sabía que, podía, que, que, que protestar es un derecho protegido por la primera enmienda de, de, de la Constitución. Entonces mucha gente me dice, Carlos, yo quiero apoyar, pero no quiero que me arresten por protestar. Y que no, es que eso, eso no es legal. O sea, eh, tú tienes un derecho. Entonces yo me di cuenta después de eso que sí hay mucho apoyo. Obviamente la gente sí quiere una reforma migratoria pero que aún nos falta mucho trabajo por hacer en el ámbito de educar a nuestras comunidades y educarnos a nosotros mismos. O sea, todos siempre tenemos que seguir aprendiendo y aprendiendo nuevas estrategias y cómo está la situación política. Eh, así que en lo personal fue un gran aprendizaje para mí y a la vez creo que motivó a mucha gente para seguir adelante, eh, pero a la vez siendo realista no logramos el objetivo eh, verdadero que era una reforma, pero ni modo, la lucha sigue. I, I feel like uh there's different successes right like there's yeah. like the big success which would be like passing immigration reform but motivating mm -hmm. someone to get involved in the movement someone coming out to their event for coming to an out to an event for the first time yeah. i think it's also a win so i think there's like wins in there in in, in what you did you know and hopefully yeah. that immigration reform is something that we're able to see in our lifetime how do you feel about the promise of that do you feel like it's attainable. I know that there's a lot mm. of people that are just very pessimistic or, or just don't think that it's something that can happen in their lifetime, unfortunately. I think there, there's a, I, I guess I have two answers to that. I think it is possible, but I don't think it's going to be possible the way most people think it's going to happen. I feel like most people think, you know, oh, if we just vote enough Democrats or, you know, organize how we've always been organizing, we're going to achieve it eventually. I think that it is attainable. I think it is attainable within our lifetime, but I think it, it will require for us to think outside of the box or, or, or think of different strategies that we haven't been doing um, in the past few years. For example, I'm not too confident that the day we have 60 or 65 or 70 uh, Democrats in the Senate, I still don't think it's going to be something that they're going to be very adamant about. I think to achieve an immigration reform is going to require some sort of action like un día sin inmigrantes, but on a very, very large scale or some sort of paralyzing of the country, whether it be through a strike or through mass protest or something like that, that really puts immigration at the forefront of, of social issues. Because I think right now, the people who are impacted by it, whether it be directly or because they're, they're in close proximity to someone who is directly impacted by it, are very passionate about the issue. But outside of that, most people don't care what happens to immigrants. They care what happens to themselves. So I think there needs to be some sort of action 
that disrupts the way of, of, of traditionally doing things in the US. That's kind of what happened with Cesar Chavez and, and the grapes. You know, people didn't care about immigrants. They cared about grapes. All of a sudden, they don't have grapes on their table. And now they care about immigrants, but not because they really care about immigrants, but because they care about grapes. I think the same has to happen. I think the power for an immigration reform is within the community. Imagine if restaurants went on strike, all the restaurants that have immigrant workers stopped working for a week. I mean, that would, that would really inconvenience people who would otherwise be indifferent about an immigration reform and would allow the movement to grow in strength. Because I think for this to be possible, we need to include more people than just immigrants and the people in close proximity to them. And how do we get to those people? It, it requires some sort of mass action, whether it be disruption of the supply chain, whether that looked like uh, farm workers going on strike or, or the Los Troqueros going on strike or, you know, whatever that may look like. But I think we have to be more creative in our strategies. And I think we also need to do a lot more long-term planning in the sense that I feel like right now with the immigrant reform battle, immigration reform battle, we're taking, we're, we're, we have like a different battle every couple of months. First, it was the battle to make the parliamentarian do this, then it was a battle to plan A, then plan B, then plan C. Now some people are fighting for a TPS, other people are fighting for uh, DACA extension at the, to the point where most people don't even know what exactly we're fighting for. I think we need to stick to one message, to one goal, unify behind that goal. And I mean, just really work on that at a local level, at a state level, and obviously at a federal level. So whether it's obtainable, I have no doubt that it is. Now, how long that's gonna take? I mean, I think that's the million dollar question. I don't want to be 60, 70 year old and, and still waiting for it, but I, I'm still optimistic. Specifically because, you know, our parents and grandparents, you know, have been, and uncles and aunts have been waiting forever, mm. forever. Yeah. I think, I think you said something, I, I forgot what video it was that I was watching of you, where you said something about how uh, people have been uh, fighting for immigration reform, uh, like before you were even born. You know, like there's folks that have been waiting here uh, forever without any status and they still continue to be here. And one of the conflicting things that I see um, and specifically in folks that are that have like DACA, for example, um, they don't feel 100 percent happy because their parents are still without status, are still yeah. concerned about getting stopped by cops when they're driving to work or driving to the store. So I really do hope that in our lifetime, we're able to see some sort of change. And, but I agree with you when you say that, I don't think it's gonna be the way that we want it to be or envision it. Like, I feel like it's, unfortunately in politics, it's kind of like you get one thing and then one other thing you don't get in order for people to agree to, to pass legislation. Yeah, I think what needs to happen is some sort of, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least in my lifetime, I think the closest we got was around maybe 2006 with the mass protest. But I haven't seen like a mass movement for immigrant rights. I mean, in the sense that there was like a civil rights movement where it wasn't just a one day mega march. It was years and years of disruption at a local level, at a state level. I mean, I don't think we've seen that same level of organizing and that same level of um, commitment to the fight for an immigration reform, at least in my lifetime. Why that is? I think there's a lot of factors. You factor in the fear. People have fear, a lack of organization, a lack of resources. I mean, there's a lack of a lack of agreement on what the best strategy is. But I think the most important thing is to realize that the collective power is there mm -hmm. and we need to really tap into that. I think that's kind of what I've really tried to focus my content is like how 
can we best do that? One of the things I've, I've been advocating a lot for recently is uh, uh, promoting uh, uh, scholarships among young, young Latinos, young immigrants, so we can get to these positions. Because one of the things I've realized as I've matured as well is that a lot of the change happens in positions where our community members are not, whether because we're not lawyers or because we're not politicians. So part of it does entail for all of us to do our own work, to educate ourselves, and that can be formally or informally um, to really learn our rights, to really learn how the system works here and then find the best strategy to kind of do it. Because a lot of times I kind of feel like we find ourselves like banging from the outside saying, change this, change this, change this. But no one on the inside really cares about our issues. So we can say all we want. They're never going to care because they're not from our community. What are you talking but about, um, do you work with other like immigrant rights organizations around the country? Um, like just talking about the movement or talking about events that you do? Or how do you navigate that in organizing events like the one that you did in D.C.? Yeah, um, so yes and no, I do collaborate, uh, just not, I don't work with any organization formally in the sense that I'm not like an employee of any organization or I don't have like a standing commitment with any organization, but it has been often the occasions where an organization is planning something, whether it be in DC or somewhere else, and they ask me to collaborate, collaborate with them, whether it be to go to the event or to just help promote it generally. And I do the same on certain occasions, for example, like I was just mentioning with Fiel that we did an event in Houston, but I don't work with Fiel. I don't, I'm not part of any kind of their committees or anything like that. Um, something similar when the, uh, the DACA uh, uh, case was being heard in Louisiana, some of the organizations reached out to me, asked me to promote the event and they invited me to go out there, but I'm not a part of any of their organizations per se. So I think a lot of uh, what is organizing for an, in the immigrants right movement is, is these informal collaborations. Um, and I've learned how powerful they can be. And you know, no, uh, it's particularly with smaller organizations, no organ or no individual knows someone or knows a community better than the organizations that are working there day to day. So if there's an event going on in New York, for example, I can't pretend to know everything about what's going on, but I can learn from organizations that are doing uh, the everyday work there. So I think those collaborations are very important. And I think there needs to be more of them, but it's particularly in a manner that are not self-interested. I say this because I, my personal feeling, and I'd love to hear what you think, I feel like a lot of organizations, particularly organizations that have grown to be very, very big, have in some occasions, I guess, distanced themselves or kind of forgotten their original their origins or whether it be um, the traditional ways of organizing where I feel like a lot of stuff has just become concentrated think tank uh, pieces coming out of Washington DC or you know with and, and has really lost that community orientated uh, side of it you know that grassroots um, that really characterizes the immigrant rights movement. I think a lot of that has been removed and it there needs to be a resurgence of this grassroots roots roots movement. Um, so I don't know, I, I have kind of, I, I, in some occasions I have had run-ins with certain organizations or disagreements in the ways they do things, but I guess that's all part of organizing as well. You know, you're never going to fully agree with any individual or organization strategy, but it's about finding where there is a, a like-minded, um, I guess, groundwork where you understand each other and then building off of that. That's kind of why I was asking, because I, I do feel like every organization wants to do things their way. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes that stops us from reaching our goals, you know, like what we want to do, you know, the, and how we want to do it. Yeah. And and I know specifically in the immigrant rights field, 
it is like that. You know, I, ex I experienced it in a local level. I experienced it on a national level too. So, and then you as an organizer and as an advocate, you know, to this level that you're at, I, I just kind of wondered what, what that, how you would navigate that, because I know that, that that would probably start conflict, you know, just in general, because of the platform that you have and because of how people uh, look up to you and, and trust you, you know, mm -hmm. and trust you probably more than, than some organizations. Yeah, and I think it's very difficult to navigate because um, I think, I mean, every organization has earned its position because they've done, I mean, you have to have done something right to kind of get to where you're at. But I think I feel the same as you do. I feel like a lot of times there's not this unity going back to what I said earlier, how are we going to achieve an immigration reform if everyone's fighting for different things or fighting? Sometimes I've even seen people are more worried about who takes the credit for certain things and what's actually being achieved. And that's not what I'm really interested in. You know, if I can help something happen, I'm not necessarily interested in being, I guess, like the one who takes all the credit, you know, if we can collaborate with different people and that that's fine by me. But um, there has been certain events, certain protests, for example, where you have different organizations, two, three, four different organizations, all supposedly advocating for the same things. But I've seen it, for example, in marches in DC, one organization is asking for TPS, the other one is asking for DACA, the other one is asking for a comprehensive immigration reform for all 11 million. And then the other ones are just asking for certain executive orders. And I'm like, okay, so people, I'm confused. The people there are confused, you know, and it says, why can't we just all organizations, community leaders, organizers, influencers, whoever kind of just say, okay, this is our message. This is what we're going to fight for and then build off of that. Um, so it can be very complex to navigate. And I think that's one of the reasons I don't particularly align like 100% with one certain organization to the point where I can say I work for this organization or I'm part of this organization. I think it's mostly what I do is, you know, oh, this organization um, is doing something really good. For example, Fiel in Houston. I don't know what they do in their day-to-day -day operations, but I saw they're doing a very cool event. You know, let me go help out. Let me make a donation. Let me invite people to come out of this event. Oh, I see these organizations are in Louisiana for the, the DACA hearings. I don't really know what they do. I, uh, maybe I don't even agree with some of the things they do, but on this particular occasion, like, yeah, this is a very important cause. So I think that's kind of how I, I, I move around. And I also have had this kind of conflict before, which is really interesting where people get either like annoyed with me or they get frustrated because they feel like I go to different things just to get attention, you know, but I'm like, well, you guys are like someone within your group invited me and I can't help that like people recognize me, you know, I didn't go to like take pictures or to do this or to do that. It's just kind of like, I mean, what can my role be within this? So I've kind of struggled as well. Sometimes I even feel like, you know, I have such a large platform and I still haven't found the best way to effectively, I guess, organize my community or the people who follow me to achieve the goals that we're all trying to achieve. And I think that all that'll eventually come as, as I mature more, as I become, I guess, uh, learn more in school, become a lawyer, you know, then maybe I can create my own organization or my own law firm or whatever and see. But right now I do struggle sometimes. I feel like I'm letting all these people who follow me, I'm letting them down or I'm wasting all the potential that lies within the numbers of people that follow me because I can't even myself, you know, say this is the best way to mobilize people or this is the best organization or organizations to align with, you know, so it can be very complex. And I have felt hopelessness at times, you know, I'm like, I have all these people, we could really do something, but where do I go from here? Yeah, I do think that you're, I mean, what you've been doing is really good. I, I feel that 
it's it's moving forward. You're not you're not moving us back as a community. You're doing a lot of good stuff. You're helping out a lot of people. Um, in regards to like TikTok, uh, you do have this huge platform, and your your words weigh a lot, right? On that on that platform, and and just in general, do you ever do you ever look back at any of the TikToks that you do and and tell yourself, man, I shouldn't have posted that. I should probably delete that one. There, ever- I mean. There- there has been certain uh, things, particularly relating to the elections, that I think in hindsight, uh, I, I did perhaps overestimate. And I guess that comes also just like out of ignorance. You know, you kind of eventually through, through disappointment, you learn not to trust politicians and other people. But definitely, I, I do think a lot about in the 2020 election. I was pretty, I, I mean, because I myself was convinced. It's not like I was willingly lying to people, but I was myself actually convinced, you know, if Biden wins, there's going to be a lot of positive change. And that's not to say we're worse now than we were with Trump, but we also haven't seen that change, you know? So I do get a lot of people who are like disappointed, you know, they write to me, the big Carlos, you said that this was going to happen and it didn't happen. And I don't know how to reply because I did think it was going to happen. So Mm -hmm. now on, I'm a lot more careful when it comes to endorsing candidates because Back then, you know, I was like, you know, I'm just making TikToks. But then I realized I'm like, what I said actually has influence in the real world, you know, because when I started, it was during the pandemic. So you just see your numbers going up, but you're like, these are just numbers. They're not actual people. Then once kind of the vaccine came out, I started doing more events in person and realizing, oh, people actually know me. People actually listen to what I have to say. My word is a lot more important, more valuable than what I think. So now, for example, when it comes to these midterms, I haven't really been adamant about, you know, saying, hey, let's 100% support this person because they're going to make our lives 100 times better because I already did that before. And I can't go back and delete those videos where I said Biden is going to make everything better for immigrants. I I think that would be the biggest thing. There are other uh, times as well, maybe, um, I would say, where I feel like I maybe could have, I don't know, like there's certain topics, for example, about like, Uh, asylum or other immigration processes that I think sometimes by just saying how the reality is has maybe disappointed some people or like created you know there's a lot of conflict between people who uh who had just arrived here who have been here for 20 years 30 years so I've made videos for example like openly supporting like you know like new programs for migrants who just arrived and that in one way without even thinking about it made other people angry like hey what about us so I think a lot of it is just learning how to frame certain issues how to talk about them. And I think I have matured a lot as far as like my communication skills go and what content I choose to put out there. Also, I've kind of um, tried to step away a lot from some of this negative content. I mean, there's just so much negativity towards immigrants in general. And, you know, a lot of time, every time there would be a negative event, I would make a video about it, you know, talk about it. You know, I still do that from time to time, but I've kind of learned to, you know, focus a little bit more on the positivity because if I transmit negativity, that all this stuff is happening that gets to people. And then it, 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 we just end up becoming, I guess, a negative, my, my, my content just becomes negative and, and I kind of want to focus more on the positive. So I have learned a lot and, and there are certain videos. I'm like, oh, when, you know, in hindsight, I was wrong when I said that, but, you know, it's kind of maturing and growing and realizing to not really trust in, in politicians in particular. Talking about politicians, you're in Texas. Yeah. Uh, Beto's running for governor. Opinions on that? Yeah, so even in that case, for example, because um, Beto, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say, oh, he's terrible. I think he's, uh, he's miles better than, than Greg Abbott. But for example, I went to one of his town halls and I asked him, I, I asked him about uh, whether he would support a driver's license for undocumented migrants. 
And he didn't say no, but he didn't say yes either. He kind of just gave a lot of like, we need to fix our immigration system and like all this stuff, but never really addressed the question. I don't know, maybe he doesn't even know that's an issue. Like, but the point being that, you know, yes, I've told people on occasions, yes, I support Beto. Uh, I, I would vote for him if, I, if you're in Texas, I would vote for him, but I'm not going to do like I did for Biden. I mean, like leading up to the 2020 elections, I'm talking, I would do like three, four videos every single day about like, register to vote, get out to vote. This is going to improve our lives so much more. And I don't regret it fully because I think we're in a better place with Biden than we were under Trump. But I do think it gave people a lot of false hope. And that's why I think when it comes to an immigration reform, we really have to evaluate, you know, are we going to achieve it by just voting for candidates every two or four years and give people this idea that if we vote for Beto, everything's going to get better for migrants in Texas, you know, Two years ago, I would have said, yes, everything's going to get so much better for migrants under Beto. Now I'm a lot more cautious. Yes, Beto might improve some things, but the real changes that we need are not going to happen this way. That's just my perspective. And I think I also need to be careful with that so I don't give people this, this false hope. Then the more you get people's hopes up, the bigger the disappointment is. So I think now I've tried to be a lot more realistic and a lot more, I guess, uh, neutral nonpartisan, whatever you want to call it, just realistic in, in a sense yeah that makes sense to me I, I i relate a lot to that where i never went full on biden just because i knew like you know the obama administration deported the most undocumented yeah. in the country's history um so for me i was well aware of that um but i i do understand you know the the complexity of, of specifically mm -hmm. with you with your platform of how like you acknowledged and going forward, you gotta be more careful with what you say. Por eso te quería preguntar sobre Nayib Bukele. Porque yo tengo, yo me siento muy diferente sobre sobre él. Yo siento como que la comunidad salvadoreña son gran fans de Nayib. El problema que tengo yo con Nayib es tanta gente que mete en la cárcel que a lo mejor no son gente que han hecho cosas malas porque sí, sí, sí. veo que que meten a un montón de gente y, y nosotros no sabemos y la gente no sabe quién de verdad hizo algo mal y quién no hizo algo mal verdad y los derechos humanos de de las personas están sido uh, están siendo violadas sí. entonces quiero, quería preguntar qué son tus pensamientos sobre él si has escuchado sobre sobre ese tema de de gente que a lo mejor no uh, sea 100% culpable que esté en la cárcel y de las violaciones de derechos humanos que, que están reportando de ese país. Sí, claro. Entonces, el tema de Nayib Bukele es muy interesante porque incluso, o sea, todo lo que tiene que ver con política, eh, ¿cómo se llama? Centroamericana y pues lo que sea fuera aquí en Estados Unidos, porque yo la verdad no estaba, no estaba muy, ente, o sea, yo tenía amistades centroamericanas, eh, pero yo nunca estuve muy enfocado en el, el lado político hasta que empecé a hacer contenido y mucha gente me empezó a conversar y una de las cosas que yo siempre he pensado con el tema de inmigración es que muchos creemos, bueno, que una reforma migratoria aquí en Estados Unidos va a ser la solución para el tema de inmigración, pero la gente al final del día lo que quiere es nunca tener que irse de su país en el primer lugar y yo creo que eso es algo muy importante que no existe en el discurso eh, migratorio aquí en Estados Unidos porque Muchas veces yo creo que hablamos de la inmigración como que es algo inevitable, que hasta cierto punto sí lo es. La gente siempre se va a mover de una manera u otra, 
pero sí hay maneras de reducir la inmigración y no de la manera que habla Donald Trump, sino de una manera humana. O sea, la gente inmigra no por gusto, sino por necesidad. Entonces yo me empecé a interesar mucho que cómo podemos reformar las condiciones en Centroamérica, en Sudamérica, para que la gente no emigre. Yo empecé a estudiar mucho y también a la vez hablar con la gente, los migrantes que ya están aquí, o, o incluso yo tengo gente que me sigue de otras partes eh, del mundo, hablando de El Salvador en particular, tengo bastantes eh, seguidores de estos países, y bueno, ellos siempre me decían, Nayib Bukele es, un, es una gran persona, lo apoyamos 100%, y dije, bueno, ¿por qué será? Me empecé a estudiar, y bueno, aprendí mucho la historia de lo que es El Salvador, y desde mi punto de vista, como tú dices, sí hay ciertas cosas que no se están haciendo bien, pero a la vez es como no sé, tiene que haber cierto balance en el sentido de que cuál es la solución, porque yo creo que eh, las cosas están tan mal en ciertos países como El Salvador que se necesitan este tipo de políticas extremas que, sea, siendo sincero, han funcionado. Si tú ves los números de la gente de El Salvador inmigrando, han, han disminuido muchísimo desde que entró Nayib Bukele a la presidencia. Y no solo eso, eh, los índices de violencia. Yo estaba viendo un reportaje el otro día de CNN que El Salvador pasó de ser el, pa el, el país más violento en todo el mundo, no solo en, en Latinoamérica, en todo el mundo, a ser uno de los más seguros en toda Latinoamérica. Entonces yo me pongo a pensar, bueno, yo quizás no esté 100% de acuerdo con todo, pero si yo fuera un salvadoreño viviendo en El Salvador y no puedo vivir en paz por la violencia, pues yo probablemente me sentiría lo mismo. Entonces yo empecé a hacer eso, a hablar directamente con la gente impactada por estas políticas. Y sí he escuchado un poco de todo, pero yo diría el 90, 95% de la gente apoya. Y yo lo que digo en mis videos, más que nada, no necesariamente soy súper fan de, de Nayib Bukele, yo, sino más que nada, yo, res, yo lo que digo es yo respeto lo que la gente de ese país, como dice, decía Benito Juárez, el respeto al derecho ajeno es la paz. Si la gente de El Salvador quiera Nayib Bukele por algo, será, y hasta donde yo sé, todo, todo lo que ha, eh, pues la manera en que yo va a poder y todo, la manera que adquirió el poder fue así democráticamente, porque la gente lo apoyó, y yo la verdad, siendo sincero, aquí en Estados Unidos, no he conocido ningún salvadoreño que, a que hable mal de Nayib Bukele, entonces es muy interesante y te hace reflexionar, porque muchas veces, yo creo que uno creciendo aquí en Estados Unidos, eh, piensa que las soluciones o sea, o que las soluciones para mejorar las situaciones en otros países son las mismas soluciones que aquí en Estados Unidos pero yo creo que cada país tiene sus problemas y cada país eh, tiene problemas diferentes que requieren soluciones eh, diferentes así que no sé, es un tema muy complejo y algo que yo también me he preguntado también ¿cuál es mi rol en meterme o en opinar sobre política fuera de Estados Unidos? porque hasta cierto punto es necesario porque lo reitero, si queremos que la gente deje de inmigrar por necesidad y que lo haga por gusto, pues gran parte de eso tiene que ser solucionar los problemas a raíz, que son la pobreza, la delincuencia, la corrupción. ¿Y cómo podemos cambiar eso si no nos informamos, si no nos enteramos de lo que está pasando en esos países? Eh, pero sí, es algo que yo me pregunto a diario casi. ¿Me debería enfocar más en lo que pasa en Estados Unidos, en Latinoamérica? O sea, un poco de los dos, ¿cuál es el balance? Porque yo, yo siempre tengo este conflicto, ¿da? porque yo también aquí en Arkansas hay muchos salvadoreños y a ellos aman a Nayib Bukele. Cuando vas a las tiendas, a los tianguis afuera, a veces tienen, tienen banderas con su cara. Uh, entonces la, la gente salvadoreña aquí lo quiere mucho. Pero me puse a pensar cuando gente me empezó a mandar links, cuando yo, yo hacía retweet uh, cosas buenas de Nayib. Uh, tengo muchos amigos activistas que me mandaban diferentes noticias y decían, hey, mira esto, 
¿Por qué estás poniendo sí. esto cuando está pasando estas violaciones de derechos humanos? Yo trabajo mucho también en la cárcel con gente que sacamos de la cárcel y les ayudamos con recursos de, de tratamiento de drogas, salud mental. Y entonces he creado una relación muy cercana a gente de la cárcel y veo en las cárceles como los derechos también uh, aquí en Estados sí. Unidos están siendo violados. ¿verdad? Entonces me pongo a pensar que si hay gente en la cárcel que a lo mejor no hizo algo mal, pero el modo que están haciendo cosas allá, desafortunadamente se quedan encerrados sin comida y las diferentes violaciones que están pasando. Veí también en la noticia recientemente que creo que Nayib quiere correr otra vez para presidente, quiere postularse otra vez. Sí. Y aprendí que en Salvador solamente puedes ser presidente por cinco años y sí. no puedes otra vez, no puedes postularte otra vez después de los cinco sí. años, ya no puedes, porque es lo que dice la Constitución. Pero creo que Nayib quiere intentar, uh, creo que hacer un cambio en la Constitución para que pueda correr por sí, primera sí, vez, sí, sí. dos veces. Entonces, no sé, se me hace la situación complicada, pero yo estoy en Estados Unidos, yo solamente veo lo que dicen las noticias, ¿verdad? No sé exactamente 100% cómo están las cosas. Sí, y yo creo que ese es el gran conflicto, por eso yo siempre, me, o sea, yo, confío, yo soy alguien que confía mucho en la gente, y yo digo, bueno, si la gente en El Salvador lo apoya y, y está a favor, o sea, ¿quién soy yo para decir lo contrario? A la vez, pues siempre hay que tener cuidado, o sea, no, no, uno, como decía, volviendo al tema de las organizaciones locales, por ejemplo, si pasa algo en Arkansas, yo puedo opinar, pero si yo no estoy ahí, yo no vivo ahí, quizás la manera en que la comunidad se lleva con la policía o con las organizaciones o es muy diferente a las relaciones que hay en Texas, por ejemplo. Entonces, uno siempre ve el mundo, ve, ve lo que es correcto y lo que es incorrecto desde su punto de vista, de su manera de ver el mundo, pero cuando estamos hablando de realidades tan diferentes, yo digo, bueno, por algo será, porque normalmente en un país cuando un presidente dice me voy a volver a postular, la reacción de la gente es, es negativa, pero en esta ocasión la gente, o sea, yo hice un video preguntándole, hey, ¿qué opinan de este tema? O sea, yo te juro, 99% de los comentarios y 100% de los salvadoreños que están en El Salvador dicen, yo apoyo esto, yo estoy a favor, yo que queremos más. Entonces uno dice, bueno, como dicen también mucho, por ejemplo, eh, en en el activismo hablamos mucho de centrar las voces de la gente directamente afectada. Entonces, ¿cómo podemos hacer eso y a la vez ir en contra de lo que dice? Eso es muy complejo. Yo todavía no tengo mis, mis opiniones 100% formadas, pero a la vez siento que a cierto punto debo respetar lo que la gente, la, lo que la gente está pidiendo. Uh -huh. lo, lo único que te digo en, en eso es que, por ejemplo, si le preguntas a la comunidad latina aquí en, en los Estados Unidos, ¿Qué es lo que tú piensas de la policía? Uh, sí. Normalmente van a decir que, que está bien que estén en las escuelas, que está bien que hagan sí. más policías para que haga más seguridad. Sí. No necesariamente significa que es bueno, ¿verdad? Porque la gente que a lo mejor ve las noticias o ve uh, las estadísticas de violencia que pasa aquí, especialmente como la, con la comunidad negra, Um, sí. los activistas y la gente que está involucrado en todo son los que a lo mejor ven y entienden eso, pero nuestras, nuestros papás, nuestros familiares, uh, su modo de pensar es que la policía está aquí para, para hacer bien, ¿verdad? Entonces, yo creo, en mi opinión, uh, yo creo que es bueno uh, no ir 100% a algo porque en el futuro puede pasar algo y uno, uno queda mal, ¿verdad? Porque uno dijo 100% esto está bien, 100% sí. candidato está bien, como tú has dicho. Entonces, sí. para mí es algo, algo un poco difícil, Edad, porque 
ves las noticias, pero ves la comunidad que está diciendo que esta persona es, es bueno para su país. Sí, y yo creo que es muy, eh, y eso es lo que yo me he dado, o sea, esa es la gran pregunta o el gran dilema de la política, que no existe ninguna figura o ningún movimiento, o sea, que sea 100% correcto ni 100% incorrecto. Todos, como dicen en inglés, es very nuanced, es muy complejo la realidad y es muy difícil decir esta persona es mala o esta persona es buena, porque siempre hay que evaluar. Y luego, pues ahí en los detalles es donde uno se pregunta, bueno, eh, ahí es donde pues entra el debate y, y pues uno puede, por ejemplo, yo puedo estar en contra de ciertas cosas, por ejemplo, en el caso de Nayib Bukele, yo puedo estar en contra de que arresten a gente inocente, pero a la vez puedo estar en contra de que Estados Unidos ponga sanciones al Salvador por el presidente que ellos eligieron. Entonces, es como, no sé, puede haber la dualidad. Por ejemplo, yo puedo pensar que esté mal. Yo en lo personal, si yo un día llegara a ser, o sea, digamos que yo fuera el presidente de algún país, yo nunca, yo nunca pensaría en quedarse, yo, yo creo que es inmoral quedarse más de lo que permite la Constitución y cambiar la Constitución para quedarse más tiempo. Pero a la vez, debo reconocer que sí, la gente dice que ha, ha hecho cosas buenas. Entonces, ¿cuál es? ¿eso quiere decir que estoy a favor, que estoy en contra? Pues no, o sea, ¿dónde me posiciono en eso? Yo por eso digo, lo dejo al criterio de la gente. Y luego, si la gente de El Salvador se, se equivoca, igual como pasó aquí en Estados Unidos, si la gente... De, de Estados Unidos se equivoca a votar por un presidente por otro, pues al final del día eso es problema de ellos, en este caso problema de nosotros aquí en Estados Unidos y creo que hay que siempre tener ese respeto. Yo creo eh, que en ese modo sí creo que estamos en, la, en, en el mismo lugar porque por ejemplo la constitución aquí en Estados Unidos no necesariamente es la mejor cosa para los inmigrantes o para sí. la, la comunidad negra verdad aquí en, en, en Estados Unidos, entonces para mí yo estaría en favor de cambiar a la constitución o a lo mejor crearon algo nuevo para que involucre a, a todos uh, igualmente, ¿verdad? Porque normalmente cuando empezaron, cuando empezó este país, todas las leyes fueron escritas por hombres blancos, ¿verdad? Y a lo mejor no sí. tenían los mejores intereses para la gente como nosotros. Y es por eso, y eso, y eso es algo que he pensado mucho también, por ejemplo, mucho, como re, volviendo al tema, mucho de lo que nosotros pensamos está bien o está mal es basado en nuestras percepciones de cómo nos han enseñado a nosotros lo que es bien y lo que es mal. Pero si vemos el sistema de Estados Unidos, es un sistema que nunca ha estado bien para la gente de nuestra comunidad. Entonces, en ese aspecto, si queremos que el sistema de Estados Unidos sea como el ejemplo a nivel mundial, queremos que El Salvador sea como el sistema de Estados Unidos, queremos que Honduras, México, etcétera, sean como el modelo de Estados Unidos, pues entonces tampoco estamos en lo correcto que digamos. Entonces yo creo que podemos vivir en un mundo eh, donde diferentes sistemas existen, donde cada país eh, escoge los líderes que tiene el sistema bajo cual quiere vivir. Y yo creo que hay que respetar eso. Eh, obviamente si, si no puedes llevar eso a un extremo donde ignorar si hay violaciones claras de derechos humanos o, o genocidios o lo que sea, tampoco puedo decir bueno, la gente de ese país escogió por eso o sea, tiene que haber cierto punto de, de donde uno tiene, la comunidad internacional tiene que opinar, pero a la vez también tiene que haber cierto punto de respeto ahora, ¿dónde está la línea entre respetar e involucrarse en los asuntos de otros países? Creo que cada quien tiene sus opiniones, pero en este caso específicamente hablando de El Salvador yo me siento con confianza de que la gente del Salvador está tomando la decisión correcta. Y es lo que reitero, 
por ejemplo, Venezuela, yo critico el gobierno de Venezuela porque yo no, o sea, yo en mi experiencia no he conocido un venezolano que defienda al gobierno de Venezuela, pero en el caso de El Salvador es totalmente opuesto, no he conocido a un salvadoreño que critique al actual gobierno, entonces te hace pues pensar, ¿no? Como dicen, el pueblo sabe lo que es mejor para el pueblo, pero quizás el pueblo en algunas ocasiones se equivoca y eso pues solo lo podrá contar, eh, lo sabremos a lo largo del tiempo. Mm. I, I watched an old video of, of yours when, when you said you were interested in running for office, possibly in the future. Is that something that's closer now than ever that you want to get involved in that? Um, um, I think it's mostly, like I've said before, it is if people want me to, you know, like most of my life, uh, I have kind of just learned to not plan things too far ahead. For example, two years ago, you would have told me you're going to have these many followers on TikTok. You know, I wouldn't have believed you. Because my plan was to be working for a nonprofit, at most running my own nonprofit, but never being in these situations that I am right now. So I think uh, running for office, I think, is very important. It's personally something that if I did do, I wouldn't do it out of pleasure. I would do it because people ask me to and because I feel like I need to represent the community. I feel like it is possibly something very stressful and just uh, not something that I really want to be in. But at the same time, you know, you look at the people who are representing our community or representing us in Congress. And there is very little people representing our community. So it goes back to what we talked about, um, having privilege and having the ability to speak English and speak Spanish and being US citizens, you know, sometimes, and there's been a lot of times that I've done it where I've gone, I've done things or I've made sacrifices that I didn't necessarily want to do, but you know, it's what's best for the community. So if there is an opportunity, whether it be something locally, statewide, federal, you know, who, who knows, I guess only time will tell, but I think right now I'm really trying to keep my options open, whether it be a lawyer, whether it be a nonprofit director, whether it be a politician, whether it be whatever, kind of just seeing what the community needs at that time. And going back to, I think, the driving motive uh, in my views for most things is the community, el pueblo dirá lo que el pueblo quiere. The people will tell you what the people want. If they want me to run for office, well, eventually, then I will. If they don't, then I won't, you know, but right now I'm just focused on helping people in the capacity that I'm able to right now, making content, focusing on finishing law school and then whatever happens after happens. That said, I 100% believe that we need more representation of our community in these positions of power if we do want to achieve change. So whether that's me, whether that's you, whether that's anyone else, you know, I always support more Latinos, more immigrants running for office, getting involved politically, you know, just taking up those spaces that traditionally haven't been afforded to us. And if you were to run for office, would it be in Texas? Oh, man, I mean, to me, Texas is my home, you know, <laughs> I guess it's a question you struggled with as well. What is home? You told me you were you're from California, but you live in Arkansas now. Uh, I don't know exactly where your family is from originally, but I'm sure, you know, oh, Guanajuato. So, you know, is home California, Arkansas, Guanajuato, you know, and I kind of have those dilemmas. But, you know, there's just something every time I go back to Texas, I just kind of feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. Maybe it's because my family is there right now, maybe because my girlfriend, my friends, you know, maybe if, if those people weren't there, I would feel different. But I, I definitely do want to be in Texas. And I think also you can relate to this as well. Like being in these red states, it kind of you kind of feel like even more important, you know, because you're fighting against the current. And and not to say that in other states have it easier, you know, but we live in states where Traditionally, immigrants have been completely, I mean, look at look at what Greg Abbott is doing right now to immigrants. That's not happening in California. I mean, obviously they have their own set of issues, but they're different areas, you know? And I feel like I need to be where the most help is needed. And Texas is one of those places that has such a large immigrant population 
but yet the policies and the treatment toward immigrant do not reflect that large immigrant population. So I'd love to go back to Texas after I graduate. And like I said, see what happens, whether it be uh, a nonprofit work, whether it just be as a as an attorney, whether it just be, you know, in politics, local or state or whatever. But I do want to go back to Texas eventually. Sounds good. Well, my last question is, who are you rooting for in the World Cup, Uruguay or Mexico? No, well, this is interesting because uh, there was actually going back to what you said earlier about like you're never going to please people on social media. Over the summer, Uruguay played Mexico. They played in, in Glendale, Arizona, and I went to the game and I went with the Uruguay jersey and everyone's like, oh, pero no quieres mexicano, que quieres más Uruguay. And I explained to them, you know, like, you know, it, it all goes back to the way you were brought up. Yes, I'm proud to be both Uruguayan and Mexican, but my dad's the one who watches soccer in the household. My mom doesn't really care about soccer. So when I grew up, I would watch soccer with my dad and my dad is obviously 100% Uruguayan. So I grew up watching the Uruguay national team, the Uruguayan league, you know? So when I got of age, I'm like, Uruguay has always been my team. Yes, I'm Mexican and Uruguayan, but just to kind of your upbringing, you know, just like for, if you ask me food, I prefer Mexican food because I like how my mom, you know, so like, it just really depends, you know, you like certain things and that's kind of the complex thing about growing with this multinational uh, backgrounds, you know, or even, even here, like some things, I like more some things about Uruguay. I like some things about Mexico. I like some things about the U.S. You know, that doesn't make me more or less Mexican or Uruguayan or a United States, and you know, whatever the name is, you know. So, um, yeah, but as far as the World Cup, I'm going for Uruguay, but Mexico is always second. And they're not in the same group, so realistically, I can root for both. Uh, then you're so, a U.S. citizen too, right? So you have to root for the U.S. as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm a U.S. citizen. And, and then you go again, like people, are, oh, but you're a U.S. citizen. Like, well, like, <laughs> no, you grew up. I grew up watching soccer with my parents, you know, and neither of them were like whatever, like it just wasn't a thing to be like, we're going to watch the U.S. national men's team play today. Yeah. So while I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, I'm not necessarily like I'm not very attracted by the national team. But at the same time, I don't think that makes me any less like part of this country than if, you know, I don't think sports necessarily defines who you like your identity. But I think it's a part of it, but it doesn't make me less or more American or Mexican or Uruguayan depending on who you support. Sounds good. That's that's a very uh, diplomatic answer, Carlos. Yeah, but that's a good thing. You know, I have three teams technically. So I, if any of them makes it far or even wins the World Cup, I can say, hey, my team won. So, you know, yeah. I'll claim <laughs> either way, you know, I'll root for them in that order, Uruguay, Mexico, and then USA. And let's be honest, Uruguay's probably got the best chance. So yeah, probably. And that's the thing you never know because there a lot of times you know when you have a good team and then you, you you have they have a lot more pressure and then they underperform so sometimes it's better to be the underdogs but what i'm really looking forward to the game i most want to watch is that mexico argentina game that's going to be that's going to be insane so we'll see that how one, that goes. The one game will rebeat or we beat messi and we uh <laughs> and we get that fifth finally I think, that, I think that's like the most anticipated game of the whole world cup at least in the group I stage so, i definitely uh, think so i can't wait you know the only bad thing is it's not during the summer, so I'm going to be in classes, like, during the games, but it, it is what it is. I'll find well, a way to watch them. I'll watch it for both of us. I work from home, so I'll be oh, okay. I'll be watching the World Cup here on my couch. So, yeah. Um, but, Carlos, thank you for making the time. I know you're a very busy man doing a lot of good work, and I just wanted to let you know that I appreciate everything that you do. And I know that people here in Arkansas also appreciate the work that you do. I know people will be listening that follow you on TikTok, which I think it's it's cool just I'm excited to hear their feedback on this interview and just about the work that you're doing in general. So thank you for your oh, work. Thanks to you, man. And thanks for everything. It 
for taking the time. It was pretty lengthy, but I enjoyed it. You know, I didn't even, I just looked at the clock right now. It's like, hey, we've been going for a while. So, you know, it was a great conversation and anything else, just let me know. We'll be in touch. Sounds good. Follow Carlos on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook. He's under Carlos Eduardo Spina. You can find him everywhere. Uh, he puts a lot of good content out there, but thank you all for listening. That's the end of episode 148 of the District 3 podcast. My name is Irvin Camacho signing off.